welcome to Is This Anime? I'm your anime expert, Jack Metcalf. And I'm the guy who knows nothing about anything, Malcolm McLeod. So for those just joining in, each week I select an anime series from Melvin Watch, sometimes a series, sometimes a movie. It's very variable in the number of episodes that best showcase that series' strength. And last week's anime was a film, uh, Your Name. Malcolm, how was it? It was excellent. Uh, I think that's one of my uh, favorite films we've uh, covered on this podcast. We haven't covered a lot of films, but I feel like Your Name's, you know, up there. Uh, It's super enjoyable. Uh, I'm surprised I had, you know, I hadn't heard much about it until we covered it. Uh, I feel like it was probably one of 2016's best animated films, and it's a pretty shocking and sad that it didn't get an Oscar nom that year. For sure. And joining us is actress of stage and screen, Alexandra Cole. How are you? Hi. How are you guys? Fantastic. We're, we're glad you could join us. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm really grateful for being on the podcast. Thanks, guys. Super excited to be here. Alex, have you seen Your Name, or are you aware of the film Your Name? I have not, and I'm not. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, it's a really good movie. Yeah, uh, Makoto Shinkai. The phrase the next Miyazaki, as, as Malcolm and I and our, our other guests last week, Sinead, discussed is a silly phrase. But, you know, he, he is a very good director. Your Name is an excellent film. And, and like I told the audience last week, I did, in fact, watch his most recent film, his follow-up to Your Name, Weathering With You. And uh, it is also excellent. I'm not sure if it's as amazing as, as Your Name. But um, guess what? This Makoto Shinkai guy, he... He's really good at making movies, it turns out. Maybe a future episode of the podcast? Man, he's, he's made a lot of good stuff. We want, we, I mean, I think you, Malcolm, and I, we really want to cover that um, Star Cross Lovers alternate history Soviet Union occupied Japan movie uh, he did. Soviet Union occupied Japan? What's that about? Uh, the name just escapes me. I'm sorry, dear listener, but you should have listened to last week's episode where we talked about it briefly. So, uh, no, uh, this this guy, Makoto Shinkai, he's an excellent director. If you, if you love your stories about star-crossed lovers uh, separated by time and space and all sorts of metaphors in between, then uh, Makoto Shinkai is your guy. Um, we're not talking about him, though, this week. Uh, we're talking about the highly influential film Perfect Blue, which was Directed by the late Satoshi Kon. Before we get into that, Alex, what is your anime experience anyways? Because I remember you and me, we we, we met through taking uh, acting classes. And I remember our acting teacher, Matthew Harrison, he would always pin me as a comic book guy, which I was at the time. And now a couple years later, I'm into even more nerdier and cringy stuff, which is anime. But yeah, have, have you watched uh, much anime, Alex? Uh, so I was a little bit more into anime when I was younger, for sure. I... Uh... Uh, English isn't my first language. I don't know if you can tell, <laughs> but uh, I grew up watching uh, things like Pokemon and uh, Digimon and just the classic animes that you would find on channels like YTV. Um, Pokemon was actually one of the ways that I learned English. So I have very, very early childhood memories of not understanding what was going on on the TV, but I was determined to understand. And uh, ever since then, uh, I watched anime throughout elementary school, throughout high school. I got really into manga, especially shoujo. When I was <laughs> in uh, my early teens, I would say 13, 14, 15, you know, classics like Peach Girl. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Um, I have not. <laughs> no, um, but it's just really girly kind of love story stuff. I uh, tried things like Gundam Seed and Death Note and Inuyasha. Um, but I always gravitated towards the kind of uh, cuter, more girly things because I've always been a bit of a romantic. But uh, I don't know if Pokemon's the biggest and most romantic story, but it's one of my favorites. I, I, ship, I shipped Ash and Misty. I definitely did that. I was oh, very disappointed. Of course I was. <laughs> I, I was very unhappy when Misty was replaced. Uh, but me and Malcolm have, t- have talked Pokemon. We've talked about how they always replace the girl with the new girl. So um, that's just how Pokemon be. Yeah, seriously. May's a trifling girl, I'm telling you. 
and then there's the other ones. Yeah. Mis- Misty for life. Misty, 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 Misty was my girl. Um, that's awesome though. It's it's always fun when people on the show, again, I'm supposed to be the anime expert and then people will drop like four shows I haven't seen. I haven't seen Gundam Seed. I've seen uh, Gundam Double O. I've seen a lot of Gundam. Uh, Malcolm has seen a Gundam. He did not like it. Yeah, I, I forget which one we used. You watched Iron Blood Orphans and it, it was definitely, it's definitely our worst reviewed show from uh, on the show. Fuck that show. Fuck <laughs> Mal- Malcolm is just bringing the knives out. Uh, Ale- Alex and Malcolm are going to be off to a great start. Do you have a favorite Gundam, Alex? Uh, well, I did. <laughs> you know, I didn't dive into it that deeply. <laughs> like I said, I was really more into the girly stuff. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So we're, we're talking about Satoshi Kone, and I-, I did say late. We'll get into that. Uh, Satoshi Kone, uh, by my money, is is was one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, he's, I finally watched uh, the rest of, again, he only made four movies. We'll get into it, but I, I did watch the two Satoshi Kone films I was missing uh, just this weekend. They're excellent. I think this guy is just at, if you are interested in film in general, uh, you should watch his work. And yeah, let, let's talk about him. So Satoshi Kon, he was born in Hokkaido, Japan in 1963. His interest in animation began in high school, as with a lot of these people we talk about. One of the early influences on Kon's work was the, was the author Yasutaka Tsutsui. And Tsutsui's work was known for its psychoanalysis and surrealism, themes that Kon's work would later be known for. Uh, guess what? This movie we're about to talk about has a lot of that stuff going on, don't you think? I love it. Cone would eventually adapt Sutsui's novel Paprika, in fact. So another early favorite of Cone's were the sci-fi series Space Battleship Yamato and, oh, guess what? Mobile Suit Gundam. Uh, so, you know, well, like any good Japanese lad in the 70s, he really loved his, his giant robots. My thing is with uh, Gundam, it appears is that it may not be the genre itself. It may be the exact like show we watch. We definitely picked a show and and arguably episodes that did not showcase that show at all. But yeah, we'll we'll get to some good Gundam. We're we're gonna do good Gundam eventually, but we haven't because we're watching other stuff like this awesome movie. Uh, so Cone's manga artist debut it came in 1984 while in college with a two-parter story, Toriko Prisoner, which was about children forced into rehabilitation in a dystopian world run by robots. And it got the attention of Akira author Katsuhiro Otomo, and Kone would end up working as Otomo's assistant on the Akira manga. Alex, have you seen Akira? I haven't yet. No, no, I, I know of it, but I haven't yet. It's definitely one that people know of, and uh, Malcolm famously uh, thought it was about uh, motorcycles, and it's not. Nowhere, nowhere close to being a it's movie. It's really about not. No, no. I skimmed through the manga when I was fourteen, and I and I remember it's definitely not about motorcycles. <laughs> there, there's a cool motorcycle. Well, that poster really, uh, it really is false advertising. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is going to be like Tron. Nothing like Tron. I want to make that perfectly clear. Nothing like Tron. So Combe was a hard-ass worker. He worked as both an assistant and his creative endeavors uh, on the side. And he was also a drinker. So combine that with limited sleep and you have a pretty ugly cocktail. He ended up getting jaundice and would spend a month in the hospital. But that didn't stop him and Otomo from making a live-action film called World Apartment Horror, which is a social satire about a Yakuza henchman who encounters evil spirits while attempting to evict an apartment filled with foreigners. This movie sounds nuts. I wish I watched it before, but I did not watch his live action, his one live action film. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, I think it's on YouTube actually for free with subtitles, so you could, you could probably find it. And Cone would end up adapting this film into a manga, which freedom of the budgetary limitations that impeded him and Otomo's vision. And throughout the 80s and 90s, Cone worked on a number of manga and anime features, 
Much of his manga work can be found in the short story collection Dream Fossil, which I bought this summer. And uh, Dream Fossil is awesome. Uh, I highly recommend it. You can get it on Amazon. Satoshi Kone, my God, his work is just so... I mean, I really should have reread these stories before, but, you know, we only have so much time. But, man, uh, his artwork is fantastic. And, again, like, you read a Satoshi Kone story and you're not sure what quite you've read and you're not sure if you're actually reading something or if you're part of the novel itself. Your sense of reality gets very distorted when reading his work. It's wonderful. And just like you've said, Jack, and, like, I know it will come up in this podcast, certain directors have really drawn inspiration from that. <laughs> For sure. And uh, so Kone's final manga, Opus, is uh, basically his manga Opus. <laughs> Magnum opus when it comes to manga. It tells the story of a manga artist who can't figure out how to finish his masterpiece, and he ends up getting sucked into the world of his own manga. Like his later work, it blends the line between reality and pop culture fantasy. And while Kohn was, like many filmmakers, a devotee of Akira Kurosawa, his most major influence was Terry Gilliam, he said. He said this of Gilliam's work. Despite being fantasy, his depictions are quite bitter. His narration also throws curveballs. And rather than covering every point in detail, he takes the staging off to a completely different point and plucks out a single vivid theme. I especially like Time Bandits, Brazil, and the adventures of Baron Munchausen. When I draw myself, I am quite naturally interested in whatever's around me, so that there's a feeling of starting from a realistic point of view, with which fantasy is then mixed and finally finishing with pure fantasy. Uh, have either of you seen uh, those three Terry Gilliam movies you mentioned? I've seen Time Bandits, and I kind of see, like, I can see a parallel to it, where, like, there are these, like, you know, I don't want to say, like, nonsensical, but almost nonsensical, you know, storytelling devices. But, yeah, there's this, like, weird edge to it. I think 12 Monkeys kind of, like, epitomizes it, which he didn't say in the quote. But, like, I feel like that's actually a pretty apt comparison. I would have also put him in, like, a category, uh, maybe just too high praise, but there's a little bit of, like, Kubrick. Uh, you can tell he's kind of either subconsciously or consciously kind of inspired by Kubrick as well, just like in terms of like the intensity, at least like the intensity of this movie, which we'll get into a little later, uh, that I was like, oh, it's very Kubrick-like. Like, it's just like everything you immediately are in and you're like, oh, like there's something off, but it's like not like off-putting. It's just like, oh, you already see how this world is slightly askew. Brazil, for my record, is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, I absolutely adore that film. And yeah, I definitely see a lot of Brazil in this, especially with the fantasy sequences and the blending and the and the, just everything. The fact that you're not you, you watch scenes and you're not quite sure which reality you're in. And sometimes you think, you know, and then five minutes later, you're like, oh, no. So Cone also scripted and co-produced episode five of the 1993 version of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure Stardust Crusaders. Uh, Malcolm and I have, have covered Jojo twice on the show. Alex, I know your friend Lizzie has actually seen some Jojo. Have you seen any Jojo? I have not seen any Jojo. I'm so you, sorry. You gotta watch some Jojo. Jojo, ah! Jojo will blow your mind. Jojo, everyone should watch Jojo. All right. I trust you guys. If you want to watch what if, what if Dragon Ball Z was just handed a shit ton of acid, you would get Jojo. Uh, Malcolm, would you agree? Having watched both shows now, thanks to this podcast? Yeah, I can see that. There's definitely uh, similarities there. Uh, I don't know if it's super like Dragon Ball in any particular way, uh, but I also uh, don't feel like I'm an authority to talk about either JoJo or Dragon Ball on any like level. But you can say that JoJo is trippy as hell, can't you? Oh, yeah. It just defies 
common convention. So it's Dragon Ball Z on drugs, isn't it? It's imagine if if the fight. I mean, fights in Dragon Ball Z are like dudes punching each other and they get stronger, and fights in JoJo are like, hey, I have a magic spirit and the spirit can do this, and it's like, no, my spirit can do this, and it just uh, devolves into nonsense. But you enjoy it. Well, you can uh, hear more about our thoughts on uh, JoJo. We've got two previous episodes dedicated to it. Exactly. Um, but here's the thing. This adaptation that uh, Cohn worked on, it took a number of liberties and shortcuts with the material. And Cohn's episode, which tackles the confrontation between Jotaro and, uh, as Malcolm put it, the bastard man Dio, is definitely worth watching. The animation is superb and features a number of mind-bending shots that will be instantly recognizable to fans of Cohn's work. So after years of working on features in various production capacities, Cohn was able to make his feature directorial debut with the 1997 film Perfect Blue. And this was initially intended to be a live-action series, but the film was scaled down to an animated feature after the 1995 Kobe earthquake damaged the production studio. And Cohn wasn't satisfied with the initial script, and he actually asked to make changes to it. He simply wasn't interested in the murder elements of the story. And the studio, Studio Madhouse, had asked that he simply keep three elements from the novel upon which the script was based. Idol, horror, and stalker, and as long as he stuck to those, he was given free reign with the material. That's interesting. That's pretty broad. <laughs> yeah, very, very broad. And they actually, there actually was a live action adaptation in 2002. There was one review I was able to find of it, and uh, they said it was very bad. And the, the reviewer also complained about the lack of skin in the film. Oh, gosh. I'm talking from the reviewer's perspective. <laughs> it was a very horny reviewer, I guess. And he was like, oh, yeah, this film was directed by like an erotic filmmaker. And yet there was far less skin than the animated feature. So he, this, this one reviewer, I won't name them, uh, was incredibly disappointed with the live action Perfect Blue. That's hilarious. <laughs> hey, it was the one review I could find. Roger Ebert didn't review that one. He reviewed the animated one. He didn't review the live action one. I'll say that. Is this like a TV movie? Is that what was going on? Is that why there's only one review? It was very low budget, but it apparently follows the novel more closely. But um, the reviewer also, uh, in less horny terms, was basically like, yeah, this novel sucked. And uh, the film, the the animated feature that Cohn made made the right choices in every regard. I wonder if that's like, I, I guess because like I, I brought up uh, Kubrick before and Kubrick and Stephen King famously didn't get uh, see eye to eye with The Shining. And Stephen King famously like denounced The Shining, the film, uh, and then made sure he had his own miniseries adaptation, like a you know 15 years later it's not very good and yet this like the like the shining movie for me is one of my favorite films of all time like it's just like i think it's a perfect it's almost a perfect film and i like i wonder if there was like the because the insistence of like hey we've got to do a live action film and like this film is very very good like i'll just say that right off the bat without getting into it more uh, Perfect Blue, uh, really excellent, like skin crawling, like just like everything about it was just like made my like just so much anxiety uh, that was radiating from this film. But uh, I wonder if there was like that author was like, no, but this isn't like the ad- adaptation of my thing. This is, you know, something completely different in my world. And then insisted on this live action film. It bombed. And then it was like, well, that never happened. I'll just stick to like getting the credit for this animated film. unfortunately the novel writer uh was not nearly on the level of stephen king and i did not look up anything about them so uh i will say i'll confirm that just by uh, like wikipedia after i watch this film and yeah he doesn't the guy who wrote the original perfect blue uh doesn't even have his own wikipedia page so 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 stephen king one perfect blue novel writer uh zero yeah that's (laughs) what a a shot taken that's so sad (laughs) 
even turns out Stephen King uh, yeah, makes makes good novels, even if his uh, what his dream projects aren't the best. Anyways, Perfect Blue. It wasn't a big box office hit in Japan or internationally, but it did have one big fan, director Darren Aronofsky, who ended up purchasing the rights to the film just so he could adapt the bathtub scene for his own film, Requiem for a Dream. Alex, you 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 texted me like an hour ago. Um, you said you were watching Requiem for a Dream. And I, I shocked you as, as a film nerd. And, and, you know, again, in our acting class, our acting teacher would sometimes just point at me in, for film knowledge. And uh, unfortunately, I have not seen Requiem for a Dream. Oh, my gosh, Jack. I'm so sorry. I have seen it. Let's talk the comparison right now because I can't say shit because I haven't seen the movie. I can say shit up to maybe half an hour. But Malcolm, please go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I can say uh, the bathtub scene in particular. I did rewatch it afterwards because this seems familiar. It's a shot-for-shot shot remake. <laughs> like, like the way Darren Aronofsky like shoots his bathtub scene in Requiem for a Dream. It's like Jennifer Connelly, and she's screaming in the bathtub, just like, uh, was it Mina? Mima. Mima. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Uh, Mima uh, screams in the bathtub in this film. It's like, it's exactly the same. It's like, he just essentially was like, what it's, how it was shot in this like film, I'm going to shoot it for my film. Uh, and there's just no like he's not even being subtle about it. It's the exact same scene, like just like a cl- clearly different because Requiem for a Dream is about uh, drug addicts, and obviously this film uh, is not about that at all. No, I, it's incredible to me. Imagine how uh, much he would have loved that scene and thought it was that perfect. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, to purchase. To that, how much that would have cost? That's insane. There's also another movie Aronofsky made, and there's a bit of controversy over his film Black Swan about how much it owes to Perfect Blue. And Aronofsky himself has said there are similarities between the two, but it wasn't an influence. Well, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to call fucking bullshit right now. Yes, like thank that. you, Malcolm. It, he, first of all, he owns the rights. So, I mean, in theory, he may still have owned the rights when they made that film. Yeah. So, like, I guess, like, legally... There's no art, you know, fight there. It's just clear, like, it's definitely different. Like, there's, like, different elements to it. But, and I know that he's come up with this story. Because I read this uh, just before we started recording. That he, like, found a script called The Understudy. And it was about Broadway actors. And, like, an understudy with a double. And, like, in doubles and all that stuff. But there's, like, no, like, in that story, there's no credited writers. Like, it's not like, hey, you know, I optioned the understudy as written by, like, so-and-so. Like, their names are not anywhere on Black Swan. And I'm just like, yeah, he clearly want wanted to, like, do this film. Like, it clearly, Perfect Blue is Aronofsky's favorite film because he's just so blatant about how he rips it off. And instead of just doing the remake, like, do the live-action thing he wants to do, It was sort of like, I guess I'll battle, you know, I'll just put it in the world of ballerinas. And then he also said, he was like, you know, this is a companion to my uh, film, The Wrestler. And I had an original script that was going to be about a wrestler and a ballerina that fall in love. And I'm like, again, that seems like such bullshit. It really (laughs) does. (laughs) Not to call. And then also, I can also say, I feel like in Mother, his latest film, there are also scenes in that that are very reminiscent to what's also going on in Perfect Blue. He's essentially just like taking parts of Perfect Blue and in each of his films subsequently, except for that god-awful Noah's Ark film uh, that I watched 10 minutes of, he's clearly just like taken, he's clearly just taken elements and sprinkled them through. Malcolm, you said you could not watch more than 10 minutes of Noah. So therefore, that means there's a potential hour and 50 minutes where he could have ripped off Perfect Blue and Noah. I remember parts of Noah and um, 
I don't know. I feel like he's really trying to step away from Perfect Blue in that one, and maybe that was the mistake he made. All he had to do was make a weird Bible movie made by, from the perspective of an atheist. I haven't seen no. I actually kind of want it. I've heard it's really fucking weird. It's all right. It's actually all right. Yeah, I mean, I haven't. You know what? I'm I'm realizing in this conversation, I haven't seen many Darren Aronofsky movies. I think I've only seen The Wrestler and uh, Black Swan. So, oh, you have to watch Mother Jack, please. Yeah, I know people who love that movie and hate it, and that's why I want to see it because I want to see where I stand on that. But unfortunately, this is not a Darren Aronofsky podcast. But here's my take. Here's my diplomatic take. He paid for the rights for Perfect Blue, so at least he did that. There are there are other. Me and Malcolm have talked about other movies uh, that have taken a lot of inspiration from anime, and the, those people were not as generous with admitting that. Uh, Chronicle! <laughs> yeah, so, you know, hey, he paid the rights for it, and guess what? At least, thanks to, thanks to him owning the rights, it means Hollywood can't actually make a shitty remake of Perfect Blue. If, if Black Swan is our remake of Perfect Blue, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah, I'm satisfied with that for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm good with that. I mean, I think it's like... Uh... Yeah, I think it, Perfect Blues feels like it's in this like category of that. So now having watched it, where I'm like, I don't know if Hollywood could do this justice. Like, it's just so such a specific vision that like anything that's you know goes away from this movie is gonna you know only do it an injustice. Mm-hmm. Unless- Absolutely, and I think anything live action just wouldn't be able to capture some of the amazing visuals and fantasy elements that just fuck with your head in this movie. I just think it would be impossible. Even the so-called realistic scenes, there's, there's again, a level of artistry and how how he chooses to depict that. Again, it's why some things are just fine animated. You, you don't necessarily need to to live-actionize every single thing. And anyways, uh, let's talk about Cohen's follow-up uh, to Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress. And this achieved even greater financial and critical acclaim. It's a film about two documentary filmmakers investigating the life of a retired actress. And as she tells them her story, the lines between reality and cinema become blurred. And it's also my personal favorite of Cohen's work. Go see it. We are definitely going to cover it on this podcast. I when when I talked to Alex about coming on the show, I actually did say Millennium Actress first, but she was like, "Oh, I want to do Perfect Blue," or or you heard of Perfect Blue? So I was like, "Actually, why not start from the beginning?" Oh, I'm keen on both. Yeah, we could have done both, but this podcast, as you will learn, Alex, this podcast can we already push our limits. We already pushed the limits of, of, of what people can listen to. Uh, we are definitely going to cover Millennium Actress. In fact, we will probably cover all of Cone's work. Uh, I'm shocked that it's only four. It is. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. There's obviously a good reason. So his, his third film, 2003's Tokyo Godfathers, is another delight. I just watched this three days ago. I, I, I paid the extra $1 to watch the G-Kids dub on iTunes because... <laughs> There are three versions of this film when you search up Tokyo Godfathers on iTunes and only one of them has the brand new dub, uh, which I really wanted to listen to because I've heard it was better than the 2003 version. The cast, the dub cast will not even show up in any description of the the cast description for either of the three versions that you look up on iTunes. I had to look up the poster that G-Kids used for that version. It was very frustrating, but I did it and I paid the extra dollar uh, to watch it. Very good film. Was it worth it? It's absolutely worth it. I think notably, uh, notably because in Tokyo Godfathers, one of the main characters is a trans woman. And in 2003, of course, they just used a cisgender man to voice that character. For this new dub, they, they did use a trans, they did have a trans woman play the trans uh, lead character, Hannah, which is really cool. And Tokyo Godfathers, especially for a 2003 film, is just incredibly respectful of every person in the film. It's, it's really awesome. It's about three homeless people who find a baby on Christmas Eve and they try to locate its parents 
And uh, yeah, unlike Perfect Blue, it's a very nice movie. <laughs> very, very 100% positive. Uh, it's a delight. Very surprising to me. <laughs> I would have thought that any uh, movies coming from Satoshi Khan would have been along the lines of uh, Darren Aronofsky, and I don't see Aronofsky doing anything positive. But maybe I'm drawing too close comparisons. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, well, in a, in a minute, we'll talk about another director uh, who, who has some comparisons. So in 2004, Cohn released a 13-episode anime series called Paranoia Agent, where various characters have their lives intertwined thanks to the actions of a juvenile with a baseball bat who goes by the name Little Slugger. And it's an utterly bonkers show that will make your head spin. Cohn created the show using unused ideas he had from various projects, and it certainly shows. Uh, it's well worth seeing, even if you don't fully understand it, even at the end. There, there's actually a podcast that covers uh, each episode one by one. I could not imagine me and Malcolm doing even like three or five Paranoia Agent episodes just in a single podcast there there is a lot to grasp in each 20 minute uh, installment of that show in 2006 satoshi was able to finally release his adaptation of yasutaka Sui's novel paprika guess guess what it's about a psychologist who uses a device that allows therapists to enter people's dreams does that sound familiar to any of you hmm. Oh. Oh, hmm. <laughs> yeah hmm. uh paprika was Cohn's most successful film to date and the subject matter it's very similar to a certain 2010 film, uh, Oscar-nominated 2010 film, uh, made by a little director named Christopher Nolan. I remember even even in like when I wasn't super into anime, people talked about Paprika when it came out, and this was again even before the Nolan comparisons happened because again this film predates that film by four years. But I just remember people talking about how trippy it was, and it. I know we're talking about Perfect Blue, and again that is kind of fits the mold of his slasher film, but man, his other three films, Paranoia Agent is a bit darker it's closer in tone to perfect blue but his other three films are so goddamn delightful and even paprika which kind of is a murder mystery kind of is some sort of thriller oh no man the, his visuals just i just watched paprika yesterday and the final scene sticks with me it's still searing in me like over 24 hours later oh it's such a good movie sounds like we're going to cover all of these films because they all sound great we are definitely going to cover we if we are going we are definitely going to cover all these films. I can't wait to watch Paprika. It's really good, man. I want to talk about the final image, but I won't. Don't spoil it, Jack. <laughs> you didn't watch it, you guys. Uh, yeah, but fuck, it's so good. It's 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 the perfect ending. I mean, such a good ending, and even just as a career ender, even if it wasn't intentional. So, do any of you guys want to beg on Nolan? Because I'm certainly cool with it. Uh, I've, I've me and Malcolm. I know Alex. You liked. Um, what was his most recent movie? I just forgot. Tenet. Tenet. Yeah, me and Malcolm yeah. did not enjoy that movie. Yeah. Imagine if we were talking right now, but then instead Sasha put in like a loud soundtrack that we, we couldn't really understand what we we're going to say. And then that happens for about 60%. That's like the one trait I don't like about new Nolan is Nolan keeps new, like... That's a good way of putting it. New Nolan. Because I think Dark Knight, the sound mix is fine. I really enjoyed Dunkirk. Um, I have a soft spot as well for Inception because I've I've never seen uh, Paprika. Uh, this is actually the first I've heard about it was today. And so, I don't know. I had that, like, soft spot there. I've also really enjoyed, like, um, The Prestige, obviously The Dark Knight, Batman. You know, like, his, like, films are all solid. Uh, I don't like Interstellar. Um, I think it's super overrated. I still have not seen Interstellar, a recurring joke on the podcast. He just, like, the only thing is, is, and I'll I'll just end it with here. I've talked about Nolan in this podcast before, but um, I feel like he just lacks heart in a way that's very obvious. Also, he doesn't know how to write, uh, write women. Um, 
but he really lacks heart. Like he just like there's like a very emotionless element to his films. Like I don't know. Uh, I mean, I've heard people say they cried during Interstellar, but I at moments they were ever supposed to cry. So uh, I just feel like that's like the one thing. It's like he kind of has this robotic view of emotion. Anyways, uh, so four years clearly isn't that long of a period of time, and I'm sure Nolan had the idea for, for Inception long before then. I'm trying to give Nolan the benefit of the doubt, but I did watch some comparisons of Popcorn and Inception, and it's like, there, there, there are definitely some shots where it's like, he at least watched that movie. Um, and you got a hand to Cone, his visual interpretation of dreams is certainly closer to the real thing. Either of you, when you saw Inception, did those dreams actually feel like dreams? Because they felt... They did not feel like dreams to me in that movie. I like Inception. It's a fun movie, but is I don't, I don't dream about that stuff in, in Inception. Uh, no, not not always, but sometimes. Definitely sometimes. Like the world tilting thing, that like that really legendary image when uh, the city's just kind of folding up. Yeah. I feel like I've seen that in a dream, for sure. Malcolm, are, are your dreams like, like Inception? Uh, I feel like um, sometimes I'm in like, like the Ken uh, Watanabe scenes, like, like I feel like maybe that, like I've like just in terms of like that, like kind of almost weird intensity, even though there's like some sort of lack of intensity. Like maybe I feel like that I've you know had dreams like that, um, but I've never yeah I've never had anything where like the coming in. I think the a sensation of falling has definitely been me up before, and like the car sequence and like the like everyone falling and like the different levels of the dream. I definitely like that for me, at least uh, kind of felt like, oh, yeah, I've kind of experienced that where, you're, you know, you wake up and you're like, what the fuck? Like, why was I dreaming that I was falling? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Or even like the impactful chase scenes where you're running on like walls and ceilings. Haven't you had those, Malcolm, at all? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I've had those. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a dream in Paprika. I won't talk about the ending, but there's a sequence where a character is talking to a bartender about his like dreams of going to film school and how he didn't do it. And like I've had those dreams where I'm just ranting to people about my life. So that I Paprika dreams are are closer to the my dreams than say Inception. I think the dreams in Paprika. I'm like, oh no, I've actually had that type of stuff. That's that's just my take. So. In 2007, uh, Cohn took part in the anthology project Annie Curry 15 with the short titled Good Morning. It's a one-minute short. Uh, it's also called Ohio. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. And following that, he began to work on his next film, Dreamy Machine. Uh, but he would never end up finishing the film, however, because in May 2010, he was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer, and he would die on August 24th at the age of 46. The death came as a shock to the public, given that he showed no signs of illness at recent public events. In a letter released after his death, he apologized for not being able to complete Dreaming Machine, claiming it was his biggest regret. Uh, he, he, there's a letter I'll post in the show notes because it's very long. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. I highly recommend you all read it. And he says in this letter, this was a passage that, that stuck out to me at least. It's so disrespectful to die before one's parents, but in the last 10 plus years, I've been able to do what I want as an anime director, achieve my goals, and get some good reviews. I do feel regret that my film didn't make a lot of money but I think they got what they deserved. In these last 10 plus years in particular, I felt as though I've lived more intensely than other people. And I think that my parents understood what was in my heart. That's so sad. Like, that's like so sad. Like him saying like, oh, that I, uh, you know, that this is my greatest regret as I didn't finish this film. Like, there's just like a tragedy. Like, I thought you were going to say that he like died of um, like alcohol poisoning because 
like an alcoholic or something. But pancreatic cancer, oh, that's a brutal way to go. Yeah, I really respect his passion. He sounds like a very humble person. For sure. The, the fact that he was only in his 40s is like, oh, man, that means, yeah, that you we missed at least 30 years of films from him because he probably was going to go until he was in his 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Miyazaki keeps retiring That's and I'm what retiring. I was say, so. yeah. <laughs> How old is Miyazaki? So, uh, something like 72 ish. I, ju- I just read an update on his, uh, his re- recent film. They say it's still like three years away. Uh, that will be, that looks like it'll be his final, final film. You never know. I mean, Norman Lear, the legend, uh, legendary sitcom writer and producer, he's still making shows and he's like 98 years old. He'll, he can go in any day. And uh, also Miyazaki's son, Goro, his most recent film, uh, which is the first CGI uh, Studio Ghibli film, got absolutely horrible reviews. So so poor Goro. Oh, oh no. I feel bad for Miyazaki's son. Oh, he, you know what? Leave uh, CGI for Pixar. That's what I say. There, there's a CGI Lupin movie. We'll probably cover that one because that one's good. But anyways, moving on. Though attempts were made to finish Dreaming Machine, only 600 of 1,500 shots were animated. Throughout the years, various directors were considered for the project, but in 2018, producer Masao Maruyama said the film would not be completed as there was no one who could match Cone's level. And yeah, that ends the history segment. I mean, I, if, if I were to make a suggestion, I feel like instead of trying to finish the film, they should at least uh, adapt the uh, screenplay into some sort of novel. I guess the question is, given that he was an animator, like, was there even a screenplay or was it just storyboards or something? That's definitely true. He may have only had notes. And then at that point, that's like an impossible task for a writer to take those notes and then make something that could live up to whatever his uh, lofty ambitions were. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I've, I've seen the Miyazaki documentary and Miyazaki, like, again, you, you watch his approach and he's, he doesn't have the ending until like the last the last like third of production. Let, let's dive into Perfect Blue. Um, it opens it opens on a cool note. I do love I, I do love the first shot where we were basically seeing like a Power Rangers performance. Yeah, that was that was so confusing at first. I was like, "Am I watching the right movie?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, did Jack like make us watch a gritty Power Rangers <laughs> film? Like, is that what's about to happen?" Like, I wish Satoshi Kon made a Power Rangers movie. I wish he made a, a Power Rangers film. Like, because I don't do any research before I watch any of these like, shows or movies, and so I was just like, "God damn it, Jack!" Uh, I want to say something just before I start really covering. Um, I really hated this film, but not because it was bad. It was because it made my skin crawl so much. There are sequences in this film that just, like, just got to me. I said that a little earlier. This is, yeah. So just to start off with, like, it being, like, a Power Rangers kind of, like, I don't know. Yeah, sort of inspired performance of this idol group is sort of, like, kind of hilarious, but also does not like even hint i think it's perfect absolutely not yeah absolutely yeah you go in completely unprepared which is perfect he's a genius (laughs) yeah so so we get after this little power ranger sequence we get to see this idol group perform and they're called cham i wrote that in my notes cham it's uh because i watched this in subtitles i don't know did you guys watch the dub uh because i i watched this on youtube and they did not even have the dub available i watched the dub subtitles okay cool so we might have so we might have different different takes cool yeah, so so Cham, I do love. Again, it's spelled all caps. I like that. I like Cham. It's kind of like Wham, you know, like George Michael's uh, original band Wham. What What do you think of the the dudes in the background who are like starting shit, like the the hooligans who don't seem like the types of people who should even be at an idol concert? Well, that the thing is, like, I actually feel like 
like this is uh this movie does a really good job of commenting on like uh i guess like idol fandom or just like pop culture stuff like because you have these like sections of like fans usually especially for like really popular like you know girls who are like just coming of age like you know like uh mima is like 21 in this story like she's not that old um and you know and you got the yeah there's always these like a section of creepy incel-y dudes like i just kind of viewed them as incels these are like total incels who are obsessed with like this band like these this like idol group because of like lust reasons like it's you know it's there's a you know clearly a sexual component to it and then it's channeled as hate right yeah yeah it's channeled as hate because they're you know but they're not doing any inward searching and like it's it's something that's like all you know all too common kind of already see it like i live near um in vancouver near rogers arena when concerts were happening you know sometimes you'd walk by and you go like oh like you know what's half what concerts happening you look up and you'll see like demi lovato and then you're like but there's like a section of like old or not even older but just like single you know single guys who are clearly like going into their here and they're not scalpers or anything. so and like i think you see that as well of like only fans like that's that's why only fans really it's because of guys yeah like we're, we're gonna get into a lot of icky territory because this movie is fucking mm. icky. <laughs> and, it, and it was like it was ickier and it even when i watched i'm like oh Oh man, I forgot a lot of the, about this movie. I knew the clear stuff, but then it, it escalates into ways where I'm like, "Oh God, yeah." So, anyways, our our lead hero Mima, she she's trying to leave this group to become a full time actress. Again, you know, we we all we've all seen those stories. Again, we've seen Miley Cyrus try try and you know change her image, or or who's who's like the la- most recent like pop star who's kind of gone into acting. I mean, Lady Gaga does acting, but I feel like she balances both of them extraordinarily well. She, yeah, I mean, she's just entered acting. Um, I, I guess maybe you can say like the two newest ones are sort of, um, Zendaya and mm-hmm, Bella mm-hmm. Thorne. I don't, I've never heard either of them, uh, but I know they're Disney Channel stars. Um, and what's so interesting is that like, with, with Zendaya in particular is that you know she just did Malcolm and Marie, a movie that I'm very conflicted by, not because. One of the characters' names is Malcolm, oh, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but it's that you know she, her. She's currently like very well known for playing high school, like two high school roles, like a high schooler in Spider Man, and she's in high school in Euphoria. So to like see her, you know, as uh, as a wife in this like drama about like an abusive relationship is kind of like it's it takes a second to get you. Fair enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and because she again she looks so young on camera, it's such a again it's that weird dynamic you know like why you know she is like in her mid 20s like it, that's not it shouldn't be an issue but you know but it's like how we're conditioned by like how hollywood cast i mean i guess we've all act we've all acted here, yeah, right? yeah we've yeah. all done that you know uh, i've gone out for some commercials where it's you know where i'm like why am i going out for this <laughs> like i don't understand i go out for younger than i'm usually am but i don't know i guess the point is is that like you know, it's just like again that that whole like Disney Channel thing. There hasn't been anyone really that's like come out of it as a kid who's been truly well adjusted. Maybe Zendaya might be the first. Zendaya might be the first. Yeah. Well, here's hoping. Fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. But um, I think she will. Fingers crossed. Anyways, um, yeah. So she's got her manager and she, uh, former pop idol Rumi Hidaka and her agent. And yeah, so Mimi, she, Mima, sorry. 
uh, Mima, she's got this first job in like a t- TV detective drama and it's called Double Bind. Um, what, what do you guys think of Double Bind? Again, the way the, the way Satoshi Kon frames everything, you're never quite sure. And this happens so goddamn much in this movie where you're never sure if you're watching an episode of of the television drama or you're watching or the real life yes it's it's so oh, confusing God. and like there were times where i thought i knew for sure which setting it was and then it wasn't mm-hmm. i love the like the fake ups when it's like and cut and you're like like the uh scene with like the guy on the street and he's do you have an agent and she's like yeah i have an agent it's like are you sure like do you want to model you want to you just hear cut and then it's like oh this was like a part of the show uh same with like well, then there's like that interrogation scene later on with the stripper scene. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Where it's like she imagined all of this happened as a coping mechanism, and you're like, "Wow, this is it. This is what this is. This is the reality." And then it's like cut, and you're like, "Whoa, whoa, my god!" <laughs> yeah, like you, I've never really seen anything like that. Like it just done done so well. And I also think like Double Bind as a show, it's weird because this movie is uh, like it's set in the '90s, and there's a couple scenes very early on that are like very 90s like them explaining like how websites work and you're like oh my god okay now i definitely know this made in the 90s and i'm gonna have my own personal website it's like nowadays it's like you gotta have your tiktok and your you know and your twitter and your tumblr and you gotta make sure you've got your instagram and all you know all that jazz uh, I thought that was, it's funny. But yeah, no, it's like this constant playing around with like, and also Double Bind feels like a modern show, like based on like just the scenes that were being filmed. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, the the, the, the fact that you're not even sure which which reality you're set in. And it confused, and every time I thought I knew, there would they would then have transitions where I'm like, oh, God damn it. Yeah, every time, every time. He was so good at it. <laughs> yeah, I like a really intense scene would happen. And then she'd like, the next scene is like her. Like waking up, and you're like, it's not a dream. Oh, like, the dream like... sequence. Oh, that drove me crazy. Did that drive you guys crazy? Drove me crazy. And what? It wasn't the dream. Wasn't her waking up from the dream eventually also part of the show? Yes. This movie is yes. going to be very yes. hard to talk about. All right, I'll, I'll just say right now, listener, if you're trying to follow along, like just like a walk through uh, Wikipedia summary of a film. Sometimes we do that successfully. Sometimes we don't. Uh, we're not going to do that successfully because this movie. Uh, it's going to be very hard, I think, for us even to discuss which levels we're on. Yeah, this is kind of like, uh, this is, this like, is like we're, we're kind of it's Inception in some ways, honestly. Yeah, it is because you don't. It's Inception at the way of like a David Fincher thriller, like like David Fincher, like when he like is on with a thriller, like Gone Girl or Seven, uh, or even Fight Club. Like it's like it's kind of like this, but then you add like this Inception element. Um, and it's like you got this, yeah, this special perfect blue. Which, by the way, they don't even talk about, like, why it's called perfect blue. Like, there's no, like, reference to the color, really. Am I wrong about that? Uh, well, I actually. I don't know. I just thought it was a cool title. Actually, actually. Um, so I did I did a little bit of digging. And uh, there's quite a few different conflicting opinions as to why it's called perfect blue. Um, at the end of the movie, I don't know if you guys noticed, but she kind of looks up at... Uh, should we be spoiling the end of the movie now? Do we care? Do yeah, we care? we're we're gonna do this non-linearly, just like the movie. Okay, because... beautiful. So at the end, she looks up at these uh, beautiful blue skies, and she's kind of saying, "By the end, we hope we don't know if she's been to therapy. We know Rumi has. We don't know if she has. Is she okay? We don't know." But she's looking up at these beautiful blue skies, 
and everything seems fine and perfect. And the entire movie, she was just trying to get to that perfect blue. She was just trying to find her happiness. So that's one way of looking at maybe why the title came around. But apparently, according to an interview with Satoshi Kon, he just thought that it sounded cool. So <laughs> I love it. There's a lot, I love that answer. I, lot, that's my favorite answer. Yeah, there's a lot of different meanings that can be dealt from it. Uh, uh, that all uh, stem towards uh, Japanese traditions with uh, and things that they associate with the color blue. Um, but he just thought it was a cool title. So there you go. It is a cool Ta-da. title, though. I mean, it is a cool title. It's a great title. But I also like I love that explanation, too, even if it was unintentional or intentional. Who knows? Like he may have just been trolling when like because like, I feel like there's some filmmakers who when they get asked like, hey, what does this mean? They'll just give off troll answers just to like fuck with people. Because they know that like the nerds are going to read into. It. No, uh, I I mean, such, given the fact that he trolls the audience constantly in this movie, he really does. You you're, you're constantly pulled under the rug, and uh, so I, I would not put it past him of just being like, yeah, I'm not giving you the I'm not giving you the official word on what that means. So uh, can I just I want to comment on something. So uh, was it Me Mania like that guy? Yeah, Me Mania. That's, that's what it that's is. Name yeah. of the guy. Me Mania. Yeah, he he he, he kind of looks like um like a, a deformed adam driver like like <laughs> that's how i kept thinking about it i was i was like i don't know uh for anyone who i uh, ever watched the slasher films hatchet there's a guy the, the killer in, in hatchet is a guy named victor crowley so this is all going out to like the, the hatchet heads out there um but it's like it's as if victor crowley he me mania's face is victor crowley meets adam driver so for the very select few who understand what I'm talking about, I hope people will go like, oh, yeah, that oh, makes sense. Goodness. But yeah, I but I was like, OK, if they made this as a live action, could arguably have Adam Driver. I really that. hope that uh, and it would be Driver very like listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I he's a great he's actor. A great actor. I think, um, like, me mania, the the look of the me, the character design of the me mania character he looks like a person who is wearing someone else's face. Like he just like kind of skins because again, like, like the mask. features don't. Yeah, it does. It yeah, does. exactly. And it's, it's so Ugh. creepy and it's so well designed that he literally has haunted my dreams. Like he, his face keeps popping into my head at random intervals. And I'm like, this is not cool. I watched this movie a few days ago. When will this stop? So kudos to whoever designed the character. Well done. I'm scared for life. When, when I was, if they did, if they did a live action version, if they did end up, would you want the actor who plays him to have an Adam Driver face I mask think it on him? We're literally wearing a face. They just have just pay Adam Driver like a couple of you know like fifty grand just to be like he's gonna wear a face mask of you that's not gonna look that great. <laughs> oh man, um, what was I gonna say? I, so so when I was like a younger kid, I did I did have friends who were into anime, and I would read these anime magazines and basically read summaries of movies like Perfect Blue, which were way too adult for my for my ten uh, year old brain to comprehend. I was reading like summaries of like End of Evangelion and uh, having existential religious crises. That were only exacerbated given the fact that I went to Catholic school. Oh my goodness, Jack. <laughs> yeah. Anime is anime is like messed up, especially like the stuff in the 90s where they were constantly using wacky religious uh, imagery. And then you compound that with going to Catholic school and you're already developing an anxiety disorder thanks to the whole God concept. So yeah, just a lot of, a lot of shit that 
those, those magazine writers, they, they should have realized like 10 year olds were reading them. I just wanted to read about Pokemon. I didn't want to read about Evangelion. Uh, guys, come on. <laughs> so what's the point? Was, uh, speaking of Evangelion, the final Evangelion movie uh, just came out. Uh, so I'm really excited to have an existential crisis when that finally comes out stateside. Where where are we in this time period? So, so one, one of the key things in this film is, of course, Me Mania. He doesn't like the fact that um, Mima is dirt, dirtying her image. And trigger warning, because we, we do have to talk, because again, this movie has some... We got to have a trigger warning because, again, this movie does deal with topics of sexual assault so and rape. Yeah. So, again, so, like, Mima, she, the role, they, they, they want her character to be uh, raped, sexually assaulted in a strip club scene. And, yeah, I mean, like, this is obviously actors, actors play these roles. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the characters in the film, he's like, yeah, like, jo- Jody, uh, what's her name? Uh, that's what it said in the subtitles. Malcolm, was there a Jodie Foster reference uh, when you watched it in the dub? Oh, they they dropped Jodie Foster's name when they're talking about uh, her doing the, the rape scene for for Double Bind. I guess the the way the dub goes about it is they kind of go, oh, like you want to do this scene because uh, this uh, like your character's gonna like be the star of the second half of the show, but you like for that to happen, the scene has to occur, and like a lot of great actresses have done stuff like this. I guess probably that's when they dropped the Jodie Foster reference, but like in the dub, it's, they don't do that. They just sort of allude to like a lot of actresses do this. And like, and it, and in some ways, like, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, Jodie Foster has you know, the, done something accused, similar. That was, yeah. Which was a fairly recent, I guess, fairly recent movie when this came out. Yeah. Well, in the nineties, like there's all like, there was a string of like, erotic thrillers that would came out like you got like everything from like jade to like uh basic instinct. uh instinct to showgirls to like wild things to like it's those joe uh Ezerhadas. i feel like i'm butchering his last name he like wrote all these erotic thrillers that kept getting made in the 90s and so i feel like there's definitely like oh yeah this was like how like the actresses who are looking to be stars all like seem to mm-hmm. because they felt like they had to and uh I, I mean it is interesting to a point and it's something that uh actually lizzie boys and i were the ones that were uh, watching uh we watched perfect blue together and she's a fan of anime yeah 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 we watched it together oh she's she did too and i was like well, you know why don't we watch this and she's like are you going on jack's podcast i'm like yeah i'm going on jack and malcolm's podcast <laughs> and so no we watched it together and when it really got to that scene that's when we really started our discussion of uh how you have to have such strong um, a kind of moral values and set values within yourself in order to be able to really have an objective consideration of roles like that and in order to take them on successfully in a way that doesn't completely destroy your psyche and in a way that you don't, you don't lose yourself and the consideration to the words, the ramifications that'll have on your career. Like it's huge. It's such a big thing. And I can't imagine what those actresses went through in the 90s, all of them having to stumble across all these roles, you know. So it's really interesting that you bring that up. Especially in the 90s, too, where it was probably, you know, 10 times, 10, 20 times more grosser and far less protections than yeah, there are now. Yeah, we didn't have Me Too around. And now a lot of people no. are answering to the ramifications of what they did in the 90s during Me Too, right? So this is like the 90s is where like is the eyes of, Harvey Weinstein, right? That's like, you know, this is the era in which he goes from being like a producer to like the go-to auteur producer in Hollywood. Um, 
you know, where, you know, it's just like, of course, like that's what's happening. And like uh, the guy I was mentioning uh, earlier, Joe uh, Ezer, uh, was it Esther Haas? Uh, he was like the go-to screenwriter. Like he was this guy who like every screenplay he wrote, they were all erotic thrillers and he was making like four or five billion dollars a sale uh, just because like, you know, they wanted to make these films. Uh, so it's like you get like these kind of all these combinations, even though like they weren't that doing that great in the box office. And yeah, it just leads to this like awkward, like moral road of like, why are what, who's this for anymore? For sure. So, so obviously the character of Mima, she, she's feeling very uncomfortable with this, but she does choose to go through with it. You know, she, she wants to do it uh, or so she says, and you know, they, they film the scene. I do like that. They made it uh, so that, um, that like, I do like that. They made it so that, uh, it was clearly a scene. Like that's like the one where clearly like, Oh, Hey, like we're filming something. Cause they have the actress and he just goes like, Oh, I'm you know, are you doing okay? Like, I was like, thank God I did that. Like, in the like in the 90s, to have that kind of uh, uh, forethought to include that in the scene, I was kind of impressed. Yeah, I was really grateful for those breaks, and it just made it that much more realistic, uh, which then made the gruesomeness of the scene hit that much harder, you know? Was- yeah, no, so, so the rape scene for the movie is def, it is very graphic, and I mean, even though we, we the audience, are aware that this is, is a movie, the, it doesn't stop it from, you know, just being very horrifying, and you can totally understand what Mima is going through. And uh, things only get worse. This is when she she starts to develop psychosis. I had to I had to stop uh, watching the um, the scene at one point. It was it was that like uncomfortable. And then yeah, as it like goes on later, like people reference in the movie, like oh you know you did that, so you'll you'll do anything else. Like there's the scene with her two bandmates later on where they're like, well she's a slut like she you know she's gonna show that because there's like a photographer who like gets you know actresses to like really bear all sort of like i guess like he's supposed to be like the equivalent to someone who's like a photographer who shoots for a playboy because that's the other thing like in the 90s as well playboy was still very relevant and like i feel like star pamela anderson and it's like oh you got like famous by doing like a playboy spread point you know which is like again super uncomfortable that was part of the star making system like just not even like that long ago and at the same time, we see um, the kind of conflict that uh, Mima has within her during that entire shoot scene and afterwards. It's uh, it's difficult because uh, you can see her innocence slowly fading away. Um, she does want to do this shoot and she does want to follow the photographer's instructions to slowly get more and more naked. Um, and she is proud of herself for putting herself out there for risk for that and for developing uh, her character and her career in that way. But at the same time, she does feel a certain part of her slipping away. So it's such a hard moral conflict inside of her. Let's, let's talk about the hallucinations, because this is when the movie movie definitely takes a turn where she's literally seeing her other self, which is like her pop idol self. Uh, what do you think of that? That was that was when I was like, oh, God, this movie. Well, speaking of hallucinations, that like photography scene, I wasn't sure if that was uh, like likewise. I, I was, was getting like- very confused. I wasn't sure if that was just her imagining it. It wasn't until, like, the magazines were being printed where I was like, okay, that actually happened. That's true. Uh, but even though, like, yeah, I mean, there's questions how real me Mania is. Because, like, he's the one who, like, intervenes. And then I was, like, there's a point where I'm like, is this guy even real? Because me Mania, as well, you know, is someone who is clearly seen. 
like in terms of like he was at like you know he's kind of helped out like he seemed like he may have been a bodyguard like at the show like he, she was he was just not like a bouncer like there to make sure you know out you know how like at concerts you know there are bodyguards out front so no one rushes the stage that isn't allowed to i thought that was like him and then like because of that moment then you know she kept fantasizing about him in other places like it was hard to figure out if he was uh after the first scene if he was actually real really really i didn't have that experience at all i felt that he was nefarious the entire way like from the very first moment i saw his face i guess it was just because i was so creeped out <laughs> i think it's kind of the last sequence where we reveal and i guess we're just jumping around at this point so who cares? <laughs> yeah that it's just that that last sequence where rumi is revealed to be you know basically the double that mima is seeing and i was like wait a minute could she have been also, Mima, well, Mima Mania killed, uh, but I was like, maybe there is someone wearing a mask there too, considering earlier as well, you said like it kind of his face looks like someone wearing a mask. So I was just like, wait, because like the one thing we haven't talked about is that during the course of the, the movie, there's a series of gruesome murders that takes place that all revolve around people who want Mima to do more and more degrading things. Like it's like the writer of the script, the writer who this uh, strip club rape scene he's murdered in an elevator there's like a letter bomb that goes off on set um you know i think well there's another murder at least oh the photographer and meme uh mania that's where i'm like when is you know when is me mania if, how real is me mania at that point uh or was me mania an actual bodyguard that then you know was hallucinated into but maybe i'm talking fucking crazy uh, because I watched this movie not too long before we were... Yeah, I wouldn't blame you for still being messed up by it, for sure. <laughs> no, but for sure, Me Mania was very real, and um, I, me and uh, Lizzie actually discussed this, the possibility of um, Rumi actually meeting with him, because uh, there was this one scene with him in his own room where the hallucination of the kind of more innocent, the idol-esque Mima, comes to visit him and is thanking him for protecting him. Do you guys remember that scene? I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the, the thing is, we're seeing that Rumi is actually the hallucination of Mima. So we're now thinking that it's probably Rumi that was visiting him in his room and they might have been directly associating but it could have been through a hallucination because he was saying that he was receiving emails from the real Mima every day. At one point, he was saying this to Mima as he was attacking her, I believe. So it was likely Rumi that was in contact with him, emailing him things and bits and pieces for Mima and Mima's website and how to find her and things like that. Like the sound bites from her rehearsing and things like that. So that was the most yeah. clear, that was the most clear aspect of that whole thing. Like I definitely understood that. Yeah, it was it was Rumi kind of it was Rumi obviously playing as uh, Mima's online persona or whatever. And when did you figure that out, though? <laughs> I mean, when they said it, basically, or, yeah. <laughs> you know. And also having seen the movie before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, I, was, I wasn't I was super shocked by it, but I also was a little, it, like, it made sense because, like, the whole time Rumi is constantly saying, like, oh, you know, I need to go, uh, you know, you need to be an idol. Like, she keeps saying, like, you need to be an idol. And she won't be an idol for whatever reason. Well, not for whatever reason. She wants to be an actress. You know, and that makes <laughs> sense. It's a good choice. You know, being an idol sort of got a finite window to it, um, you know, but she's obviously obsessed with her. And, like, I guess there's this, like, uh, the one scene I was thinking about after, uh, is that, like, clues in that, like, Rumi's got nefarious purposes 
is that like Rumi excuses herself just before that like hallway sequence where like uh where Mima is chased by the doppelganger like around. Uh like that's for me, I was like, oh, that's like clearly the like the red herring of like Rumi's in on this. Do you oh, remember okay. that? I don't. <laughs> so uh, I feel like you know those those kind of seeds are planted, but like again, so much is it's hard to figure out what's real and what's not. And I also I guess part mm-hmm. of it's also forgetting that like yeah, like having websites like oh here's my personal website, um, like it's like so it feels so obvious nowadays. But you have to remember like I kept reminding myself like oh this was ninety, yeah, like having a personal website was a big deal. Like it was not easy to manage, and like and they were more blog like. Because it's like pre YouTube, pre Twitter, pre everything. Like we're talking like probably even pre like MSN Messenger and like AOL. Yeah, I think it's definitely pre MSN Messenger. There's a lot of HTML and coding, and oh my goodness. And and yet, and yet the film, (laughs) unlike a lot of movies, especially Hollywood movies in the '90s, this movie actually handles like the way the internet works uh, in a very proper way. It never feels cringy or silly. It's like. I mean, obviously, the characters have to explain what this stuff is, but it's still like, no, this could totally very, very much happen. I guess, again, it would happen through someone's Instagram, but it's still there's nothing about it that feels unrealistic or silly, at least I feel. Mm-hmm. That's part of how it makes your skin crawl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about something kind of fun. Do you think Double Bind was a good show? Mm. I feel like it's like it's playing on like those 90s cop dramas like nypd blue so it would have to be a procedural but it had these these like hbo markers because like there's literally like a nude girl that's like yeah. dead in the bathroom in one of the shots and so i'm like wait a minute like this like was this like the like at the dawn like just before sopranos kind of deal um like with it i like, feel like it would have been yeah it's had, like a straight to dvd thing that they're saying so i don't know yeah it's sort of like it feels like nowadays it as i said earlier it would be like an hbo series that they were making but back then you know i guess it had to be some sort of cheesy-ish cop drama in the vein of like nypd blue i don't find it to be very cheesy though because the actors especially in the uh in the uh, original Japanese, it play it pretty straight. So I was like, "Oh no, this is like this is a good show. I think it's a good show, or at least by the standard." I don't know about cheesy, but I think just uh, plot twists that are kind of like weird. I think that would definitely factor into this kind of show. Like the fact that the writer didn't even know where it was going when they were talking about, "Oh, tell us, you know, who's the killer? Who's the killer?" And he's like, "I don't want to spoil the fun." And then a few seconds later, he's telling the other guy, "He's like, oh my god, I have no idea, you know." So, yeah. Fair point. Those kind of dreamed up plot twists. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not cheesy. The cheesy's the wrong word there. Maybe campy. Um, just I guess it would be uh, maybe the better word is like it would be something that would be very dated that they were making. I guess also probably I think if anything, I'm just thinking out loud here. I think the fact that there is a bunch of new DDD probably does mean it's a bit of an exploitation series or something like that. It, yeah, it was in the uh, part Cinemax, of the Skinamax show or something like that. I don't know. Po- possibly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I don't know what the the obscenity rules in Japan in the nineties were. Unfortunately. Yeah, they were, it was probably yeah probably a lot stricter than we even realize. Although this this movie gets away with a lot, so it's hard to tell. Well, this movie. I mean, that's the other thing too. This movie has a ton of nudity, a lot more than I remembered. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's pretty gratuitous. Like, it's pretty... But, I mean, 
it again it like fits in that like yeah it clearly made in the 90s kind of vibe yeah it definitely surprises you the amount of nudity that's in it but i think it's necessary yeah for the kind of discomfort that it's trying to create you know so double bind so double bind we it is revealed that uh in the double bind show mima's character is suffering from dissociative identity disorder I, I like the actress who plays uh, the doctor in Double Bind. I think she was like the one character who I'm like, this person, other than Mima, that was the one character who wasn't garbage, I feel. I, I can't say anything bad about that. I can't say, <laughs> I like that actress. Uh, I like that actress. She was, I don't remember her. I, I remembered remember. her because I, wrote, I couldn't find her name, but I wrote down her character name in my notes. And her, her name is Dr. Uh, her character name is Dr. Tuco. And uh, I, th- I think that act, the actress who played Dr. Tuco she seemed like a chill person. I was like, she's a solid lady. Solid yeah. lady, good actress. Clearly, I thought she was a good actress. I'm so, uh, once again, uh, do we want? I guess we might as well talk about the final confrontation. I'm so, guys, I'm so fucking. Well, confused. I guess also what I guess before we leave, before we leave this, uh, the the sequence with the multiple personalities in the show, they refer to her as Mima, like in that scene. That they do too. Is Mima yes, playing herself? Is Mima playing herself in that scene, or is this like Mima just dissociating in the middle of filming? I think it's her dissociating in the middle of it's, filming. It's her dissociating because then they say the character name a second time. Then they do like another mm-hmm. take or something where the character, where her actual character's name is said. They don't remember that. I, I guess I'm going to again take your word for it, but I don't remember it. I was just like, wait, like this is where like the lines were really blurring. It's, together yeah yeah that's that's the scene where it felt most real for sure for sure but yeah no jack's right jack's right that did happen yeah no that's 100 and this is where we finally head towards our conclusion where uh mima is confronted by me mania uh he attempts to, to rape her and you know th- oh wait fuck i want to talk about one of the murders uh the ice pick murder is fucked guys that scene is it is it wrong to say that scene was awesome in terms of gore i was like okay this is this is the one scene in the movie where i feel like it was becoming the slasher film that the studio wanted it to be oh yeah that scene was like yeah that was brutal um you it's know bloody uh, as fuck guys was that a mima that killed him what do you mean it was Rumi? i think it was no because well the body looks female the body looks female so i think it's Rumi. i don't think it's me mania doing that murder no i think that's mima i think mima killed him did she not no i don't think mima ki- no because all the the murders that mima thought were were all planted by Rumi. and the bo- <laughs> the body is bigger too i remember that yeah <laughs> i don't know i feel like no i feel like this one was mima's murder I feel like she did kill this guy because every time that Rumi shows up, no, because every time that Rumi shows up, she's in the idol costume, right? So that's every time that we see a Rumi hallucination. In that scene, Mima isn't wearing an idol costume. She's wearing a pizza delivery costume and she's not appearing as an idol. So I would think it's Mima that killed him, no? I just don't think Mima killed anyone. I guess that's, and even, I know she finds her clothes, but I would, I assume that was planted by Rumi. I mean, I guess my whole thing is, is it's hard to say because, like, it's kind of, like, very hard to distinguish, like, the way they kind of, quote-unquote, shot it. That, like, oh, who is that? Was it Mima or not uh, who killed that piece of delivery guy? But at the same time, I would figure, like, she's in such a panic state that it's, like, a kind of a preemptive self-defense kill. Like, it's that she's so spooked that someone was entering, it hit this just random pizza guy, and that, that's why she went and killed. But at the same time, like, Jackie just pointed out it's like oh but like did she, would she have actually done it or is this like another hallucination like this is where those layers 
start to form where you're just like, I do not know what was real or what in that last 10 minutes. Listeners, you you comment. You tell us who is right. I I, I personally think it's Rumi because I'll, having watched the film before, I just noticed that the body was, you know, more closer to Rumi's body type. Maybe I should have. Re- yeah, maybe I need to rewatch. Uh, maybe th- this feels like a. This feels like a rewatchable, but um, but I will say like it's that wasn't my favorite kill. My favorite kill. If we're just going to talk about favorite kills, I really like just the visuals of the uh, the screenwriter's death and the fact that like mm-hmm. it's that like that creepy shot of like the distorted like sound coming from the elevator, and then you see that like I guess the boom box that's just the sitting boom there. Box. Ooh, yeah. And then yeah. It, and then <laughs> afterwards, it's like he's like you kind of hear like some sounds, and then you like the elevator opens up again and it's like him just dead and like the blood kind of on the back of the elevator. I feel like move other films and TV shows taken that elevator death. Like, I feel like I've seen that in other places. Um, I don't know if that predates those things. I can't name a specific one, but it's, yeah, again, you can maybe make that like Stanley Kubrick, uh, shining comparison where like in the shining, there's that elevator blood sequence. And it's like, this almost rivaled it. So, so yeah, ba- uh, bless Sasha, who could probably uh, re-edit this and move this to, to, to where it can be properly linear. Nope. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's move to the final sequence. So, yeah, we, we get to the part where we finally kind of, like we said, we've, we've already kind of jumped to the ending uh, several times. Mima is confronted by Mimania. This is another thing. When, she, when he's attempting to rape her and she fights him off, I still wasn't sure if Mimania was real or not. Do we even see the body like when she when they go back to the scene of the crime uh, of when it happens? No, because Rumi's gotten rid of the body. Mm-hmm. Rumi kills uh, Me Mania for failing his mission. This movie. I know, I know. But we see his body later with um, her manager. I don't remember the manager's name, Takahashi. I mean, that makes sense, actually. Like, that's, I guess, if you're uh, you explaining that, Alex, where I was like, oh, yeah, that like that actually makes a lot more sense than my convoluted theory. Because, uh, yeah, it would. It's, I like that a little more. He was a real person, and then Rumi kind of uh, recruited him at some point. Mm-hmm. But I did, like, yeah, I mean, that sequence is pretty crazy. It's like, because it's like all happens back on that, like, stripper soundstage uh, where she's attacked. But I think the more compelling, where I was like, is this even real uh, for initially, was that uh, when uh, Rumi attacks uh, Mima, like, in her apartment, and, like, she's got the ice pick. And she stabs like Mima in the shoulder. And then Mima like, you know, gets onto the balcony, kind of hops off the balcony, falls to the ground. I was like, oh, that probably should have killed her. And then it didn't. Didn't she fall to the ground though on garbage bags? I might have been. Oh, that was part of the fall. It was sort of like she kept. It was a long fall. Yeah. I'm just amazed that she didn't break anything. She could still run. I was like, she got stabbed. She's climbing over these buildings. She's falling. She's still running. But, but guys, the most mind blowing thing. And listen to this. Every time the hallucination would chase her, the only thought I had in my head throughout that entire scene, watching it on the edge of my seat in a complete panic, I was like, how is she levitating? She's a fat, (laughs) middle-aged woman. How is she levitating right now? The power of me mania, the power, the power of idols. Um, I have no explanation for that other than that this is an animated movie. I just assume that um, that she would, that was again, the part of the hallucination. Yeah, I mean, 100%. was that like she was floating and like, you know, or maybe that, you know, some sort of trick. Uh, but I, I don't even know that was that. But I guess, yeah, you're, you're right. She was floating when she was being chased. But I guess like it kind of like 
her surviving that fall and then being able to run sort of goes in line with a lot of like endings for slasher films like like hatchet the movie i referenced earlier victor crowley that's a slasher film like that's like a just an old school 80s throwback slasher film just made like in the last 15 years uh there's i think four of them now but uh, it doesn't matter um it's yeah i mean it's like kind of the trope and the fact that like uh i love that ending where like they and the, the mask gets ripped off and then Rumi is like instead of really being confronted Rumi is going like stand in front of that truck and get hit by the truck and i kind of love that mima like actually dove and uh tackled uh tackled her out, out of the way of the truck and sort of, you know kept her alive i don't know like, i guess that showed uh and like for me at least that like oh mima couldn't have made it like really killed because like that's not in her personally like again this is like that like the doppelganger the double you know the imposter whatever you want to call them um that was their actions uh, and that was just their way of trying to make her go into a further psychosis you know i would i kind of agree but i also disagree i feel like mima could have uh killed that photographer in the depths of her psychosis and not realize what she was doing and by this time she's kind of woken up by this time uh by the end when they're confronting each other and uh Rumi's mask is off and she can see who she really is and she's got her pinned against the wall she's nearly got her with this umbrella she's saying I'm real Mima's saying that she's realizing she's the real one so I feel like that's kind of her wake-up moment and maybe that's what contributes to her saving Rumi uh but I still think that she killed the photographer <laughs> oh I guess here's a question before we yeah just gonna move away uh, okay, so I want to go like kill by kill, and then well, let's each say who we think actually committed the murder. All right, so for the first one, I believe it was the letter bomb was the first one. Happened. Who do you think committed the letter bombing? I think it was Rumi. I think Rumi did was Rumi. for the mm-hmm. for the letter bomb. Um, uh, for uh, the screenwriter, who do you think uh, was responsible for the screenwriters? Rumi. Rumi. Rumi, or I wasn't sure if it maybe was uh, me mania. I wasn't sure if maybe he was, but I guess yeah. Rumi is a good yeah. So Rumi could have orchestrated it, and me mania could have done it. We don't know. That's <laughs> that's a possibility. And then I think the mm-hmm. third murder, yeah, was the photographer. Unless I'm missing. Something. And then yeah, so this one, Jack. Who do you think? Uh, the photographer. I'm st- I'm still going with Rumi, guys. I'm I'm holding I'm holding to that. Although I'm online and I was trying to find like a definitive answer, and it turns out people still debate this. So uh, good for Satoshi ah, Kone. Okay, yeah, because like now, like for me, for me with photographer, I was gonna say I felt like oh no, of course Rumi did it, but I don't know. Alex, you kind of came up with a compelling reason as to why it could be the first murder that she commits is uh, the photographer one, because considering that like does the most stress, um, mm-hmm. and so I'm gonna you know what controversial opinion I'm gonna say. Um, I'm gonna say that uh, Mima did that murder. Now, betrayal, betrayal, betrayal. Yeah, um, but okay. So then the next murder would be like that deliver the pizza guy. Uh, who do you think killed the pizza guy? Well, it would it would just have to be Rumi. The pizza guy is the the ice pick photographer killer. That's that's who I was referring to because they're wearing the pizza uniform. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, oh, okay. so, if, if, mm-hmm. so you think if, I, if I'm saying Rumi killed the photographer, then it would also be Rumi who killed the pizza guy. But then you know, we've got two of us are saying that that uh, Rumi didn't kill the photographer, thus didn't kill the pizza. Or do you think it could have been both? 
I didn't see a pizza guy kill, so I thought that the uniform was just stolen. According, according to a Cone retrospective from the website Monkeys Fighting Robots, they're definitively saying, yeah, Rumi is the one killing the photographer guy. We're just seeing Mima's illusion. So that's, mm. I still, again, I don't think, I don't think Mima has it in her, guys. I just don't. No, All right, but we're, th- this, we're, we're not going to be sold on this, though. So, well, we'll take it to a vote, dear listener. <laughs> uh, but we do know one thing. We do know one thing, because this film does end. Uh, it's got a happy ending again. And and Mima, at least in the, the, I don't know about you, Malcolm, what the final line was in the dub. Because I feel like when I watched this the first time in the dub, the final line was different from the subs. But the subs line, the final thing is, um, Mima says, no, I'm the real thing. W- was that different for you? Yeah, it was something along those lines. Like, I'm, I am like, yeah, I think it was, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but um, it was something along the lines of, um, I, you know, I'm Mima. Like, I, yeah, like I'm, I'm the real one. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I'm me. And I'm me. That's how it ends. I mean, yeah, she, she finally gets, gets to be who she is. Also, the movie's a hit too. So it worked out for her. Well, did, is, did you guys have the scene like afterwards? She visits Rumi in the mental yeah. hospital. Yeah, yeah that's the end of the movie. movie right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because then I I love that like there's that scene with nurses and they go uh, Mima. Why would Mima be visiting here? Like they just like that's how famous Mima's gotten now since the movie mm-hmm. came out. Which I I thought it was a television. I'm show. still kind of confused. I think maybe I might have messed up and just said movie, but forgive me because. This this movie has messed me up. <laughs> but guys, let's just really hope that Mima did get the help and therapy that she needed because this woman clearly needed she some. She needed therapy. some. Um before we do final thoughts, we we have our favorite segment. Um who is the speedwagon of this movie? Uh Sasha, play play the speedwagon song. Allow me to elucidate ya. The name is Robert E.O. Speedwagon. So, so Alex, uh, and your listener, if you, if this is your first time tuning in, I'm, I'm surprised you picked Perfect Blue as your first episode to listen to, um, but thank you. Uh, so the Speedwagon is basically our favorite side character or really any character because some movies some some series have have less characters than others so we can't just like pick a random extra which is always fun but uh malcolm i'll let you go first who is your speed wagon for perfect blue i'm gonna say something controversial and uh and say i i don't have a speed wagon this one this is a speed wagon less film like i just feel like there was no one uh in kind of the peripheries of the main story that was kind of worthy uh that like deserved it uh i feel like you know this is such a like uh you know solely focused on mima and then there are some bad characters like you maybe could make an argument for like the two lead actors of double bind but i don't know like this didn't feel worthy so i'm gonna say i think maybe for the first time ever i may have done this once i forget uh right now maybe uh, I'm going to say, yeah, so I have none. No, uh, this one, I'm for the first time, I'm giving no speed wagons to anyone uh, in the support. My, my speed wagon is the actress who played uh, Dr. Tuco because uh, I just thought she was a really nice lady. And I thought she was a good actress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my speed wagon, hmm, I'm actually going to 
I think I'm going to have to jump on Malcolm's uh, train of uh, speed wagonless controversy and say that I probably do not have a speed wagon for this one as well. But I knew you'd pick the actress. Jack. She she was it. really cool. I hope she won uh, many awards. I hope I hope uh, the show Double Bind. She was the the lead on that, and I hope she continued to have a successful career. Um, which means we definitely. But you know what that means? We definitely need to have you on another episode, Alex, because uh, you didn't even get to pick a speed wagon, and that's the first time for a great guest. Uh, this is Malcolm's first time not picking a speed wagon, and also our first time having a guest who didn't have the chance to pick a speed wagon. So. You know, Satoshi Kone, you made Perfect Blue, which was a good movie, but uh, it wasn't perfect enough to have a speed wagon. So real, real shame. But also a delight because I get to come back. Thanks, Satoshi Kone. You do. <laughs> um, so let's do let's do final thoughts, guys. Uh, this film, uh, yeah, made my uh, skin. Uh, it like just ups the anxiety. Uh, it's a really well done, taut thriller. Uh, and it's uh, worth watching because it's, you know, uh, it's better than I'm going to say something special right now. It's better than most um, Darren Aronofsky films. Most I, like this, just like from his whole filmography, like you can tell, like he owes so much <laughs> to this film. If you've ever watched an Aronofsky film and gone, ah, I wish this was a little better. Just watch Perfect Blue and you'll see something that is better. Alex, what about you? Well, my final I would say my final thoughts are a pretty good tag on to Malcolm's. Uh, if you're gonna, if you're gonna watch anything that's kind of like a Darren Aronofsky movie, but that's gonna probably, yeah, again, make your skin crawl a little bit more. Um, definitely tune in and watch Perfect Blue. Um, it is not your average anime. If you're one of those people that thinks anime is just cartoons, this is way past that. This is a film. This is gonna affect you probably for the rest of your life. And you should watch it. It's an awesome movie. It, it really is. Satoshi Kone is an incredible filmmaker. And yet, even though I love this movie, I think, I think it's, uh, if I'm going to rank his stuff, I think I prefer Tokyo Godfathers and Millennium Actress over this. So that only tells you, that only tells you how good those two movies are, folks. Yeah. And I'm going to say this, like, I go on a limb, like, uh, we will be covering those other films. Like, I'm going to make Jack do it no matter what. If Even if we get sidetracked, it, we will get to Millennium Actress and uh, Tokyo Godfathers. They sound delightful. And Paprika, especially Paprika. Those three films, I'm actually just intrigued by as like a fan of just cinema. <laughs> so uh, we, we're doing We very those. well could have done a miniseries. But again, you know, we, we, like, to, we like to judge whether, whether you, dear listener, are listening to it. And, and uh, I'll just say right now, you better. You better. We are, we're doing these, I wouldn't say linear order because our, our next show... <laughs> Our next episode, which I'll announce, is uh, not Millennium Actress, but certainly if you've loved this episode, uh, you'll definitely love our our future episodes covering Cone's work. He is, he is one of the greatest artists uh, to have ever lived, and it, it is a tremendous tragedy that his life was cut short. And yeah, please please read the letter that I'll post in the show notes, um, which were his like last words, and uh, they're utterly beautiful. I wish I could read them, but it, it is a very long note and would take us another 30 minutes. Awesome. Uh, I just want to put it out there to anybody that's listening that uh, has ever considered a film in this in, in a, uh, a career in this film industry. Uh, just make sure that like Mima, maybe <laughs> uh, don't make the same mistakes. Uh, have a really good head on your shoulders. Have a solid moral compass and uh, set values of your own. Otherwise, it's so easy to get lost in go a little crazy in this industry and uh, don't deny therapy because everybody needs it. Please take yourself to therapy. Thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, uh, but I'll say it here. Uh, there's two types of people in this world. There's people who are in therapy and then there need to go to therapy. So you, everyone fits into one of those two categories. doesn't matter how well adjusted you think you are. And uh, yeah, in this industry, if you in payment, uh, you, you can say no. All right. Uh, I had auditions where I felt very uncomfortable. I've said no, hasn't really affected me at all. In fact, I think it's only positively affected me. So you know, if something doesn't uh, make you comfortable, you know, just say no. Like, no one's going to hold it against you. Just say no. And if they do hold it against mm-hmm. you, they're a bad person and you shouldn't be associated with them. And bef- before we end off, we, of course, have to uh, announce the next episode and next show we're uh, going to cover. And that will be Death Note. Uh, and we're going to be doing it with Lizzie Lizzie again, returning guest Lizzie for her second time and also third time because we're, we're going to do Death Note over two weeks because Lizzie has already committed to it. <laughs> That's uh, my girl. Everybody, that's your girl. <laughs> yeah, no, it's gonna it's gonna be awesome. Lizzie, Lizzie was a great guest the last time. Just just as you're a great guest right now, Alex. So we're really happy to have her on. And I I guess you, dear listener, are finally excited that yes, we're doing Death Note because I I binged all of Death Note in four days. Plus, I watched the movie. Um, uh and we'll talk more about that because we're not going to turn this into the Death Note podcast. And also, we've already done a podcast longer than Perfect Blue, the movie itself. Yeah, Perfect Blue is 80 minutes, and this is recorded. It's a tight 80. It's a tight 80. So, Alex, uh, can, can you be found on social media? Do you want people to, uh, to find you on social media? Absolutely. Just as long as they're not following me on the capacity of a me mania, you can find me on Instagram at Alexandra Cole. So that's A-L-E-K-S-A-N-D-R-A dot K-O-E-L. I do some fun stuff on there related to film and a lot of hiking and nature stuff because I'm a nature nerd. And you can also find updated information on my IMDB, Alexandra Cole, or www.alexandracole.com. Excellent. And yeah, you you can find me on Twitter where I get into Twitter fights with random people all the time. Although lately I've been actually pretty peaceful. So I'm disappointed if you've been looking for uh, Twitter fights lately, uh, dear listener. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of in a positive mood, so I don't have anyone to fight. Um, although I am disappointed that Kim's Convenience got canceled or, or ended, however you want to say it. Um, but yeah, and yeah, that will be very dated reference by the time this. <laughs> uh, find me on uh, find me on Twitter at uh, only real Jack M. And uh, for Instagram, Jack is Jack. And Malcolm, you don't really use Twitter anymore, but your Instagram seems to be popping, or at least you promote the show. Yeah, so I, I'm on uh, I'm on Instagram uh, at Malcolm R J McLeod. That's M A L C O L M R J McLeod M C L E O D. Technically, that's also my Twitter handle. Uh, you can follow me there, although I haven't tweeted anything out from that account in years. Uh, but it's still active, and I may come back to it. Who knows? Um, and then, yeah, if you want to support the show, obviously we're on Instagram uh, and Twitter. Um, yeah, the best way to uh, you know support the show is also just like like uh, and leave a review, uh, whether you leave a review on uh, Google or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're uh, listening from. Uh, word of mouth is the best way to uh, help uh, our little podcast grow. And uh, please uh, just tell your friends. Uh, it's you know we're I'm ha- we're having a lot of fun doing this and. You know, I'm really discovering so much about a whole genre that I, I didn't know about. And like, as we said, uh, next week we're doing Death Note. And uh, I think we've wrapped this. Is Any last thoughts? Oh, yeah. And we're, we're doing Death Note episodes one to five. I should, I've, I should make that known. That's probably a key thing to, to say. So, yeah, Death Note's one to five with Lucy Boys. 
And yeah, uh, follow us on, on for Is This Anime at Is This Anime Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, thank thanks for listening, guys. This, this movie, um, I, I I still don't know which reality I'm in right now. Maybe maybe I've just been watching Perfect Blue all along. Maybe we are in Perfect Blue. Maybe Perfect Blue's maybe, watching yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we're the Perfect Blue uh, all along. Uh, anyways, the real Perfect Blue was the friends we made exactly. along the way. And don't and don't forget, <laughs> go go Power Rangers. That's the end. <laughs>